everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Watch New Evil. This is Matt. And this is Zach. And we've finally done it. We're finally going to take a look at the 1979 science fiction horror film directed by Ridley Scott, Alien, which is one of my personal favorite movies. And uh, I forced Zach to watch it so that he has now <laughs> forced seen it. Me. <laughs> I forced you to watch it. It was... No, I've been dying to see this one too. Yeah, there were chains there and... Were chains padlocks involved it was essentially saw i'm imagining like a almost like mystery science theater 3000 (laughs) (laughs) yeah um zach i wanted to actually start out this podcast episode i know a lot about this movie but what would you say your knowledge of alien is um so previous to this i had only seen prometheus and i remember next to nothing because i feel like you have to like watching that movie you have to be somewhat informed on the alien lore well you may not have known much about alien but let's test your knowledge about other aliens from other movie franchises and so i created i created a game (laughs) it's called alien anybody's guess and so i'm gonna name a race of aliens and i want you to tell me where they're from all right so here's the first one you already know this the xenomorph where is it from uh, alien? Yeah, it's a gimme. It's from the alien property. Okay, this next one also should be easy. Where are the Kryptonians from? Uh, is that like Superman? It is Superman. So here's the next one. Where is this amphibious alien species from? The Mon Calamari. Oh, that's Star Wars. That's what uh, Akbar is. Yeah, it is. Admiral Akbar is a, is a member of the Mon Calamari species. Where are the Navi from? Oh, that's Avatar. That's, that's the blue people. That's Avatar. You got it. Awesome. Okay, you're doing good. This is the colloquial name for them. Where are the prawns from? Isn't this from... This is an old movie, right? Mm, not too old. Okay. I was I was going to say, what was it? Isn't it called like they, they came from outer space or something like that? No, no. But oh, oh. Wrong. <clears throat> Much more recent, actually. District 9. Oh. The prawns. What are the, what are the actual aliens called? I don't think that they ever specify. I think they, they just call them prawns in the movie. Oh, you know, I forgot about that movie. That's a really, that's actually a really good movie. It is a good movie. Okay, Zach, where are the dolphins from? That's uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It is the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Matt, wow. you're going to, you're going to be questioning my knowledge of the Hitchhiker's Guide. I didn't know you were familiar with it. Yeah, I mean, I've read the book. I read the first two books. My last one. The last one that I have, and this one's probably the hardest. Where are the Yatia from? The Yatia is the the race that they've been given. They are more often known by the same title as their movie. Hasbro. Is these are the this the canonically that's like what the dice are called? What? Hasbro? What? Yeah, like yeah, Yatian. Oh <laughs> shut oh god. <laughs> All right. You better delete that. <laughs> I'm not gonna delete it. It's gonna stay in here. So that's got to be the predator? It is the predator, yep. Oh, okay. Yeah, we call them predators because they hunt. Obviously, we call these aliens the alien from aliens, but it's a xenomorph. <laughs> I like that in the movie that there is this kind of like anonymity to mm-hmm. the alien. So I don't really like xenomorph. I mean, that's very realistically how humans like to name things. So I guess it's not terrible. Xenomorph came after... It wasn't Xenomorph until later on. And in fact, in this movie, they, they re, you know, only refer to it really as a life form. The, the perfect organism. And we get to kind of see how the alien or what we call the Xenomorph 
evolves throughout the course of the series. The first version of it is this sort of parasitic microbial organism that we see in Prometheus that infects a human host. It goes through these different transformations, these like host transformations. But the first time that we see a xenomorph, it is actually emerging at, like a chestburster from a human. The first thing that we call a xenomorph is actually human born. And one of the things that's really interesting about the Alien franchise is in every iteration of the films, in every, you know, successive movie, they tell you a little bit more about the sort of origin of these alien species and the way that there is almost this desire for the alien to become a little bit more human. Mm -hmm. And we see that in uh, the sort of way that it, it creates this colony in aliens. And then specifically in the fourth one, there's, there's sort of like a weird sex scene between her and the alien, which gives rise to a new alien species that looks humanoid more so than the current one and acknowledges her Ripley as its mother. So it's, it's all about like the life cycles and uh, mm -hmm. how they relate not only to the life cycle of the alien, but also to their own evolution into this sort of proto-humanesque form. I think that, you know, a lot of that is to show the adaptiveness of this species. And mm -hmm. if you think about, like, the the amount of time and space that this evolution is taking place over, it makes sense, like, for it to be in its current form, wherever it is. And when it, they call it a perfect organism, they're actually referring to it as a genetic perfection. And this idea that if left untouched by humans, they would essentially be immortal. Because that's mm -hmm. why the Wayland yutani Corporation is like so adamant about finding them. And and the whole the whole metaphor of Prometheus is that, you know, he was the one that brought fire to people. The human mm -hmm. race is created from this, essentially a race of giants, right? That's who the mm -hmm. these these Prometheans are. And so mm -hmm. there is a connectivity between the Prometheans and humans, the Prometheans and the aliens, and the aliens and the humans. So there is this sort of triadic relationship. I mean, like with, with the, the head of this corporation, like wanting these aliens to cut, it's, it's like, it's a fountain of youth situation, you mm -hmm. know? At, at the end of the day and in the form of almost like a colonization kind right. of thing, which th there are plenty of pieces of media about, you know, searching for the fountain of youth, Prometheus bringing fire to man. It's like, think of how like we, we use fire as a tool to improve our own quality of life, longevity, to even stay warm and, and survive through the seasons. And, and it's kind of like that, that adaptability of these aliens as being like their fire, mm -hmm. you know, their, their ability to survive. And I think that's why they consider it the, the perfect organism is because it's not because, oh, it's a killing machine and can destroy any, anyone that, that it comes into contact with. It's, it's more of like its ability to survive its hardiness because that's right from the get go, the face hugger yeah. stage, I guess they're, they're talking about how, oh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't look like that 
terrifying it's just attached to his face like and it's still helping Kane breathe then they then they try to pry it off and they cut cut its leg and they discovered the acid blood mm-hmm. and I think it's Parker that says it's got a wonderful defense mechanism you wouldn't dare kill it yeah I mean I, I don't know what would be easier to kill the face hugger or the chest burster but this is in its most fragile form mm-hmm. right <laughs> so this makes you wonder at that point in the movie, like, okay, what are the abilities going to be as it grows and, and evolves here? Okay, so the, the face hugger is, it's clearly a parasite. It's like the, the parasitic stage of its life. It's the bot fly. Yeah. And the way that parasites usually work, it has a host and parasites stick to one species of host because they have to, they have learned to, uh, how to process and assimilate and benefit from that host's DNA. It stands to be true that then the xenomorphs can only treat the humans as hosts, which I, I don't know if that's what they were thinking when they made this movie. <laughs> <laughs> or they they thought, hey, this movie was pretty successful. Let's make a sequel and actually make this more scientific and canonical in nature and, you know, really create a, a solid through line throughout this franchise. And that, that being said, and you describing what happens throughout the series <laughs> and me having seen both ends of the series... It sounds like they do a pretty solid job. It really does develop it over time. Like, the the qualities of the movies, I think, does obviously diminish a little bit. But you do, in each movie, get a significant piece of new information for each consecutive movie about their history, about how they are developing. Like, it, everything is is thoroughly explained as far as the actual progression of the aliens like we get we get more and more pieces of the puzzle and so mm-hmm. I, I would say that the you then question like how does the life cycle of this creature actually work which i think is, is interesting and it's fascinating because the metaphor is that of motherhood and it started as this sort of uh statement on motherhood and on specifically like violence against women this is shown in a couple of ways first of all what is the name of the computer it's mother (laughs) yeah exactly and so the mother is the thing that wakes them up and has them get out of their stasis pods which is a metaphor for them being obviously taken out of the womb john hurt's character kane getting attacked and essentially impregnated by the xenomorph or the face hugger is this is that idea of like forced pregnancy that is forcibly brought to term in the form of the chestburster and actually it's it's interesting too because in other references in media there are so many relationships between pregnancy motherhood and this movie for example in the simpsons there is a a scene where homer witnesses a woman giving birth and he says this is like that scene out of alien I think that part of it is so much attached to a, a little bit, at least that like forcibleness that that idea that it's like these people or these mothers, these women are being forced to sort of carry these children. And in that, you know, the the there is something very phallic to the face hugger, how it deposits the eggs in one stomach um but then also when we get to see that sort of like trope of the 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 violence against women in that metaphor when ash has ripley in the sort of communal area and he has her knocked out on on the wall in uh, in the background on on the wall we see all these like 
little cut up pictures of of naked women from like magazines and stuff and ash rolls up one of the magazines and starts to shove it down her throat and that's like very clearly like phallic imagery Mm -hmm. even even like how he was holding it too, like where he was holding it that is sort of like the the example of this idea of like masculinity and like uh, the like sexual domination idea because it it comes up again too in the way that we sort of have ripley is depicted as being this like she's first of all she's a very strong woman um, and she is the mother figure on the ship and she's not respected. Like they don't listen to her. Like they, the other, you know, the other kids, they, they open the airlock, even though, you know, direct orders given, they are not to do that. They do it anyway. Mm-hmm. The way that Parker, he makes a lot of sort of sexual references to Veronica Cartwright, Lambert. There's this like idea of masculinity. There's also this like sort of assumption that Ripley and Dallas had a romantic relationship or, or like a sort of sexual relationship that wasn't on an even power balance. Oh, with with the mother AI, what was interesting about that is a lot of those moments that involve mother mm-hmm. one, it's it's often like the the men who are in charge before they die, uh, they go to mother to kind of like solve the problem for them. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's like it, they're truly treating it like a mother and they're children and they're kind of helpless without her. And then Ripley like finally goes in there. It's like, all right, let's see what this computer is telling me I should do. And yeah. she then finds out that it's like shrug, you know, you're on your own, basically, you know, in, inside the mother like capsule room, you get all these like really symmetrical shots of like the head on like the, these panels and there's these these lights that are blinking in symmetry across the room and it's this like really it's kind of like this almost football shaped room but it's yeah. it's symmetrical and you get that when they come out of the pods in the beginning too you get this like really symmetrical shot when the pods all open up yeah and it it's like eerie how centered that camera is and it also happens in the infirmary when Kane is on the uh, kind of like the gurney slab whatever you want to call it there's one man on either side of him and it's a like it's got Kane kind of like you're looking at his uh, at the top of his head and you have one guy on either side of him so there's another symmetrical shot in this infirmary which is like you know kind of this you're being taken care of uh kind of place and your your wounds are being healed and it's it's like motherly care so I don't know what the symmetry has to do with it i i think maybe it's like you get two basically identical sides to the story and the screen you get what we know as motherhood as humans but there's also like aliens it's almost to show what we would call the humanity of the aliens like they they are their own they have their own culture and connections and attachments just like we do but Yeah, you could go down that road all day. But what I was really like, like the, the strongest impression that I got from this movie was the atmosphere. And it does yeah. such a good job. Killer. The sound design combined with the cinematography combined with the set design. Mm-hmm. But the, the atmosphere of this is just so consistent and permeated in all this stuff. Like it all works together in such a fluid and tight way. Mm-hmm. Like the sound design itself, you get... And you mentioned this while we were watching it. There is the the silence of of space mm-hmm. 
but you then combine that with like kind of the ambient like and mechanical sounds of the ship and the planet surface which is like kind of disorienting and, and unsettling because you know when you get those you get you get the sounds of the outside of the ship you get the sound of the ship like kind of rushing past but with the silence of space around it mm-hmm. and then you get the silence of the inside of the ship in those tense moments where oh let's try to find the alien or let's try not to be found by the alien and there's those tense moments and you also get the ambient sounds of like the ship on the inside so you get this like just this unsettling feeling that whole time of like all right what does this sound mean or what does this sound mean you know where's the alien or you know it's it's just like kind of off kilter the whole time i mean i i say those two things like where you get silence and the the ambient sounds and the mechanical sounds and like the really loud sounds but they they cut between the two so jarringly Mm mm-hmm at times, it's like, it's really disorienting, but it adds and, and kind of establishes that atmosphere originally, because that's the that's the thing that's consistent throughout the whole movie. So I, I just want to talk about set design real quick, because mm-hmm. this is something that isn't really consistent throughout the movie. It's, I mean, it's immersive the whole time. You feel like you're on a spaceship. Right. And you feel like you're on an alien planet. It's, it's really, really well done. And it looks great. For being 1979... Mm-hmm. You compare this to other movie. Compare this to movies that came out in the '90s, and you're like, "Yeah, hey, this looks really good." Uh, the alien itself is like flawless. Uh, yeah. The only time I laughed at the appearance of the alien was when it was kind of dangling out of the shuttle at the end. But right, right, right. it's just the way it kind of flops around. It's not really <laughs> the the costume itself or anything. Really, really great set design. And at first on the ship, you get this like really well lit, clean. It looks like what you know, the the public has seen of spacecrafts. You right. know, it's like when you watch documentary on space travel, like this is the stuff that NASA is showing the public. And mm-hmm. it, there is a sense of normalcy in that. And then they get to the planet. It's immediately counter to that. Planet service is shrouded, mysterious. It, For lack of a better term, it's alien. <laughs> and then after the xenomorph is on the ship, the ship scenes become darker and just the overall feel of it, like the way that it pans around rooms, it feels more like labyrinthine. And then you even get that, like I even mentioned that weird room where there's just chains hanging from the ceiling where I think Brett is taken by the alien. It's like, what What was that room? Like, What was the purpose of that? It was just like this weirdness to it. There's this off-kilterness and it adds that immersiveness you get from all right, this seems like a space exploration movie to, oh, they've landed on an alien planet, there's something going on here, to there's an alien on board, everyone is boned, you know? And so the set design just does such a good job of that. Yeah, one of the things that I think uh, I like about this movie and uh, about other space movies that have this general idea is if you look at futurism and this idea of futurism as it even begins in, like, Metropolis... Futurism always has this very clean, very chic, very minimalist lines. And we see futurism in all sorts of media. And so even like, you know, spaceships in 1950s, it's got this very flat chrome. It's it's single toned. Everything is really smooth, you know. And what this does in its set design is it shows a couple of things. One, the, the places where they live actually are customized like people would live there, which 
is not something that we see on spaceships often. And so it does give this notion of habitability. And then it also shows the incredible industriousness with which they had to actually build spaceships. And so in a way, it's almost more realistic. Like it's it's a little grittier. It's a little grosser. It's a little bit more mechanic. Mm. And they juxtapose between like the really clean stuff with this more mechanical because the mechanical is necessary. It, it is what would be realism and it upsets sort of the, the status quo that we've had with like futurism and spacecraft for the last 50 years before this movie. Everything was clean. It was chic. It was simple. It was exotic looking, but it was all very minimalist. Mm-hmm. And then in this, yeah. it's just like, no, we got chains here because we need the chains here. Like it's, it looks mm-hmm. as if it would function. It looks like a car. It looks like, yeah. you know, the inside of a diesel engine. It, and that's, I, I agree with that. I like that a lot because it's believable. Like mm-hmm. you look at a, an actual spaceship, it's not clean. There's computers and wiring and controls everywhere. Like they are on the Nostromo. And also what I like about this is the, the, the realism of the space suits. They're not like these sleek kind of designs that you're talking about with this futurism. It's a spacesuit. That we we've seen NASA astronauts wear, and the thing is, when they're on the planet in their spacesuits, the spacesuits aren't like these shiny, spotless like they're not like tailored, right? They're 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 spacesuits again, like they're bulky, <laughs> I mean, they're space big, suits... they're uncomfortable, they're they're clearly burdensome. I mean, having recently read a book on uh, the origin of space travel, I know I know that spacesuits are actually heavily tailored, but they're yeah, they're baggy. Right, and, and because they're but they're baggy on the outside, but then they've got the the interior layer that actually squeezes you very tight because it's the pressure system. Yeah, and if, I didn't mean tailored as in like tied to their body. You just Obviously, mean like really clean, really clean. Like it looks like it just got back from like la- laundered. Might be a better <laughs> freshly it got, laundered. It got a yeah. It was just the cleaners. They aren't shiny. They're not spotless. They they have space dust on them when they're exploring this planet. There's crap all over them because that's what would actually happen. Right, right. It's not this like interstellar it's, bullshit. It's gritty. Like yeah. it is a, it is gritty. It is gross. I mean, uh, Ripley, she's like sweats. She gets dirty. She gets grimy. Like it is, it is not so clean and crisp and precise. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. You get, I think a little bit more of, Uh, that like crispness of look that like very clean almost look from the alien i mean that kind of goes back to what i was saying earlier that it kind of looks machine like yeah yeah and Uh, i think that it is supposed to look like that a little bit it it does yeah it does kind of this industrial look which i i actually thought there's like kind of some statements on capitalism in this in that i mean the obvious and literal being that this company, what's the company called? Wayland Utani. Wayland Utani. They risk the safety of all of these crewmates, saying that they are expendable, mm-hmm. uh, just just for the chance to study this perfect organism. And this this ship, they say in the in the beginning that the Nostromo is a transport, but they never say like you get the impression that they're like on their way back home from whatever job they just did but they never say what they just transported right Mm -hmm. so it gives you the idea that whatever job they just did was a cover for them actually transporting the alien that that, that's what the job was the whole time oh yeah clearly i think no it it wasn't just like a side thing the the alien 
I like how they made the alien's presence very intentional, and mm-hmm. it's not like, oh, we went on this alien planet because we we found this, you know, this transmission that could have been an SOS, and an alien just happened to hop on board. No, it's it's not incidental that the aliens there it was intended the whole time. Yeah, uh, it's, that's just good writing. And the, and the way that they do it so subtly too, because it gives you hints about Ash's character early on, and I mentioned this to you: the fact that when John Hurt has the face hugger on ash's character wants to put him into stasis he wants to he wants to put him into a coma and let him there until they get back it is it is the other guy on the ship dallas uh he's he's talking to dallas uh ash is the one that wants to put him into stasis and dallas is like no let's do this let's cut him free now and ash is just like we shouldn't do that and he's like are you willing to take responsibility if something bad happens and he's like yeah i'll fucking do it just let it let's get him out of there and so we get to sort of see ash's intentions really subtly from the beginning like it's it's Mm -hmm. it's clear what his motivation is which is to bring the (laughs) alien back and then it's once all of the stuff starts to happen the alien breaks free and the crewmates are trying to kill it that ash has to start to try and kill ripley the biggest threat and clearly the smartest like i said she's kind of like that that bruce willis like Mm -hmm. badass that does everything right at the right time. Like, yeah. it starts out with her deciphering the transmission as a warning rather than SOS. So yeah. she's like, hey, I don't know if this guy should be down there. It seems more like a warning. Mm-hmm. But then then she tries to follow the quarantine protocol. Ash kind of usurps her on that. Then she becomes suspicious of Ash. She even tells Dallas that. Mm-hmm. So you, you get this, like, you know, strong female lead as, as we've grown to call them and in 1979 yeah 1979 that was kind of a big deal yeah but uh, lambert's the worst (laughs) like it's she is the counter to the strong female lead in my opinion and and val my wife thought the same i mean from from the moment where like you actually start to get to know her as a character Mm -hmm. on the surface of the planet like uh, i think dallas is talking to her and he's like would you stop griping? And she literally says, I like griping. And I think that sums up her character because she just becomes this like sniveling mess as soon as Dallas dies. Yeah. I also think that it's it's about her like representing a, another sort of realism. Like to me, because there's there they have this in the second movie too. There's like a, a whiny guy in the second one that is like overly emotionally weak but in this it's it feels very much like it's realistic like she's a reflection of what the audience would actually feel in that so in that way i think that she's a terrific actress uh veronica cartwright obviously and we know who veronica she's a good actress but yeah the character is it's just terrible like the there's she's like so emotionally helpless I feel like we're supposed to hate her. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that emotionally helpless, like, I think that's to also kind of show, like, the the need for motherhood mm-hmm. as well. Like, they're, they're showing that vulnerability that you feel when mother has a, like, mother, the AI, has kind of abandoned them. Yeah. So, She's I think the foil. She's a foil to Ripley. Yeah, that's, yeah. 
She's yeah, exactly. And, That's exactly what my thought was. And from a from a perspective, you know, they they're just like, oh, it's just it's it's not feminist to have her being portrayed with such weakness. But I would say that there is sort of a parallelism between between Ripley and Parker as there is between Lambert and Brett. Because I don't like Brett at all either. Yeah, he's he's like the most two dimensional character. Yeah, there's something to dislike about him. A good good space movie. I would say, and and good good horror movie. I mean, there there are a lot of things. I think at the core of it is the thing that produces fear here is like the unknown. There is so much mystery around what this alien is, what its motivations are, the whole planet that it comes from. There, we get the image of the architect uh, at the beginning there, right? And no meaning behind it. Right. We, we can only infer things. So I think a lot of this comes from the unknown, as, as a lot of uh, sci-fi horror movies do. It's just so influential. It's it's honestly one of my favorite movies. And it is one that I will always go back to and one that I think will always hold up. Well, I, honestly, I, I was a little apprehensive. Like, I wanted to see this movie. This is one that we talked about doing from the start of this podcast. podcast. Yeah. Um, it's just we did the thing first and, you know, you got to put some space between those two. Um, and it was a little bit too much space, let's be honest. I also was like, hey, this is a 1979 movie. I kind of lowered my expectations. And I shouldn't have. (laughs) I shouldn't have doubted them because for 1979, this is like awesome writing, the quality of the writing, the effects, the atmosphere, the soundtrack. I mean, the soundtrack is kind of a product of its time, but it's it's, it's, it's a great era of soundtracks. And the set design, it's like... I can't imagine how much money they spent. I didn't look it up, but this this was bound to be a blockbuster. So I guess I could have communicated better. Because I also I also did a game. It, it's very apt that I ended up saying the year that this came out a lot at the end here. Because I prepared a game that involves other movies that came out in 1979. I don't think this game is as good as yours. But it's I'm going to describe a movie, another movie that came out in 1979. And this game is called 1979 Space Novelty. This first one. This horror movie stars James Brolin and Margot Kidder in a supernatural and satanic nightmare. James Brolin and Margot Kidder. Is it Am- Is it Amityville? It Amityville. is Amityville. Yeah, Amityville horror. Yeah, Amityville horror. Good job. <laughs> All right, second one. This space exploration movie about an artificial intelligence bent on the destruction of Earth. Uh, it stars Nimoy and Shatner as they lead their uniformed crew to save the day. So this is a Star Trek movie. Yeah, it's the first Star Trek movie. Star Trek colon the motion picture. The motion Remember when they called movies motion pictures? Yes, I do. <laughs> oh man, recently, yesterday, in fact. Third one. I'd be surprised if you know this one, but this is a space mystery. Another space movie. You can tell the space race had recently taken place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, this space mystery stars Anthony Perkins and Maximilian Shell. The USS Palomino comes into contact with another ship that is assumed to be missing yet now plans to be the first ship to travel through a black hole. Oh my god, I know this movie. Have you seen it? Um, uh... I'll give you a hint. I okay. said the name of the movie. You said the name <laughs> of the movie? And it wasn't an accident. The, the, bla- <laughs> the, the, the Psycho 2. Um, the Black Hole. Psycho 2, colon, The, the Black, black Hole. hole. And it, yeah, it is The Black Hole. Yeah. <laughs> You'll get this one. Mm-hmm. This this George Miller film stars Mel Gibson in its titular in, in his titular role before the Thunderdome. Mad Max. Yeah, and this last one. 
This animated anthology thriller was directed by Ray Patterson and tells the story of a group of teenagers reminiscing about their mystery-filled past. I'm going to be honest. I don't think I know this one. Probably not. This was in 1979 this was scooby-doo goes hollywood oh okay <laughs> whatever <Intentionally> ambiguous <laughs> come on I, I had to throw I, one in there <laughs> that was good yeah no that was a good one that counts that's horror and, we're gonna be and, doing scooby-doo zombie island someday so and i wasn't you know it's not like i was mincing words there it's truly what the movie's about it is what it's <laughs> is about it, yeah i do it, love it is an that. anthology <laughs> i do love scooby-doo uh at hollywood Zombie Island is incredible. Yeah, I mean, Zombie that's like classic. I, won't, classic I will not hear Zombie Island slander. Oh, you will not hear it from me. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Watch No Evil. This is Zach. And this is Matt. And remember, in space, nobody can hear you scream. <laughs>